Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for having me here tonight. It's been a joy to be able to be with you today and to be out in this uh, beautiful state of yours. Where I come from in El Paso, it is a desert. And so, uh, you know, green is not a normal color where I'm from. And to be able to see green grass and trees has been a great thing. And uh, really, truly, it's a delight to be able to be with you this evening. Let's go ahead and just get right into the scriptures tonight. If you'd stand with me in reverence of the word, let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 6, please. 2 Samuel chapter number 6. In our church at Hillcrest on Sunday nights, we're going through First and 2 Samuel. We were just in here the other night, and uh, this was a blessing to me and to our church, and I hope it will be to you as well. In 2 Samuel chapter number 6, in verse number 1, the Bible says, Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baalah of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries, and on timbrels, and on cornets, and on cymbals. I want you to just kind of get a feel for the scene here. There's a lot of celebration going on. There's a lot of praise going on. There's a lot of happiness going on. But in verse number six, it says, And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. That means the breach upon Uzzah. And David was afraid of the, of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they, had, when they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well as to the women and as men, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, everyone to his house, 
Then David returned to bless his household, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. And David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father and before all his house, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord, and I will be more vile than thus, and will be base in mine own sight. And of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. Let's pray together and we'll get into this tonight. Father, we thank you for the day and we thank you for your word. And Lord, tonight we ask that you would speak to our hearts from your word. Lord, would you please grant unto me the ability to speak and to explain and to preach the word of God tonight. Help me to think clearly. God, I pray also that your spirit might apply and appropriate these truths that I believe are contained in this chapter unto our hearts. God, would you challenge us? Would you convict us tonight? Would you draw us closer to yourself? I thank you for what you've already done in my own heart this evening and even through this passage. So would you help tonight again in Jesus' name? Amen. Thank you. And you can be seated. The obvious thing that we see here taking place in the early part of the chapter is that David is wanting to retrieve the ark of God from the house of Abinadab and bring it to where he is in Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant had been in the house of Abinadab for 20 years. We know this because you can go back to the early part of Samuel in 1 Samuel like 5, 6, and 7. And in that particular era of Israel's history, they thought whenever they got in a skirmish with the Philistines that if they just brought the Ark of the Covenant to the fight, that that would be like a magic charm and they would be able to whip the Philistines. And in fact, the reverse happened. Because it wasn't, the Ark of the Covenant was not just a lucky charm. The reason they lost to the Philistines way back in 1 Samuel chapter number 4 was because the people were living in sin and they were far from God and they were rebellious to God. And so God's blessing and His power had been removed from them. In fact, in that particular story, the Philistines, as you may recall, actually took the Ark of God and took it to uh, the temple of their god, Dagon. I've always found it a bit interesting and humorous that whenever they bring it into the temple of Dagon, their God, that two very interesting things God did to the Philistines as a result of that. Number one, uh, the idol Dagon fell down on his face and broke his hands off, which I always thought was kind of an interesting thing. And second of all, God smote the Philistines with hemorrhoids which is just a very odd thing to do. But nevertheless, the Philistines said, let's get rid of this thing. And they wanted to send it back to Israel. So they sent the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel on a cart. That's interesting. Don't forget about that. They sent it back to Israel on a cart and it wound up finding its way to the house of this guy named Abinadab in kerjath Jearim was the name of the town that they were at. The people were so excited to have the Ark of the Covenant back that the inhabitants of kerjath Jearim came up and they uh, peeked into the Ark of the Covenant to see what was in there. And the Bible says back in the early parts of 1 Samuel that when the inhabitants of kerjath Jearim looked inside the Ark, that God smote over 50,000 inhabitants of the city and the region of kerjath Jearim and they died right then and there. 
People, people were so scared that they said, let's leave the Ark of the Covenant here. And that, has, that is where it has stayed for the last 20 years when we pick up our story. David knows that the Ark of the Covenant is not where it ought to be. The Ark of the Covenant rightfully belongs inside the Holy of Holies in the, tem- uh, the tabernacle that Moses had constructed. And that was a, uh, a transportable house of worship, as it were. And that's where it was supposed to be. And that was where the high priest would go in uh, once a year and offer on the Day of Atonement that, that great sacrifice or the, the, the offer the blood of the spotless lamb and sprinkle it on the mercy seat as a, uh, uh, almost like a credit card payment for the sins of the people for the coming year. It was a representative of the blood of Christ that would one day be shed for them, of course. Nevertheless, they haven't done that in 20 years. And David knows that this is not the way it ought to be. The Ark of the Covenant, I think we, we, it's good for us to kind of understand this, that the Ark of the Covenant is like, what, what does this represent and what is this about? Earlier in the book of Exodus, in chapter 25 and verse 22, uh, whenever God was commanding Moses to construct the tabernacle and the construction of the Ark, God said that the Ark was going to be the place where he would meet with mankind and where he would commune with them. The ark isn't, it's, it's not by accident that was, it was designed the way it was designed. It was designed, first of all, it was overlaid with gold. It was, it was a, a gold structure. And gold represented the holiness of God. Inside the ark was the law, which was the basis of the covenant that God had with his people. Now, we know from the New Testament time period that the law does not congratulate us. The law points out what is wrong with us. The Bible says in Romans that by the law is the knowledge of sin. So in this this one piece of holy furniture, you had represented both the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. But on top of it was this wonderful thing called the mercy seat where God would uh, atone and he would forgive the sins of mankind and he would show mercy because of the blood of an innocent lamb. God and all of that, those dynamics are represented in that one sacred piece of, again, holy furniture. Basically, the idea behind the ark was this, was the nearness of the presence of God. Now look, God, it's not like God had disappeared from Israel and it's not that God wasn't present in David's life. But the Ark of the Covenant was this thing that represented the physical manifestation or the presence of God in a very real way. A couple of other times in the scripture, the significance of the Ark, David would say in a very, pretty much the same story, but that is written in 1 Chronicles chapter uh, I, actually, I think it's, uh, yeah, First Chronicles chapter 13. David says that one of the reasons he wanted to go get the Ark of the Covenant was so that they could inquire after it. Having the presence of God in such uh, proximity to Israel, David said, I want God's presence close so that I can inquire after him. In other words, David believed that the nearness of God's presence meant that he could get guidance. Another thing, I believe the Ark of the Covenant was uh, signified was just the blessing of God. I mean, we see that in our passage that we read that whenever Uzzah died and they left it in the house of Obed-Edom, God says, or the Bible says that uh, the house of Obed-Edom was blessed because of the Ark of God. Now, we know that the house of Obed-Edom wasn't just blessed because of this piece of furniture. It was blessed because of the presence of God that was around that Ark of the Covenant. 
It was the presence of God that brought the blessing of God on the house of Obed-Edom. I think there's another reason that David wanted it close by. He says, I want God's guidance and I want God's blessing on my life and on this kingdom and on God's people. Another very real part of the Ark of the Covenant was the power of God. I mean, I think that's kind of part of what verse number two is about is he says the Ark of the Covenant, uh, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts. That's a military term, the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. We know from early on that whenever they took the Ark of the Covenant and they were trying to cross the Jordan River, that the, the priests went and they took the Ark of the Covenant. And as they put their feet into the Jordan River, that was what caused the water to part. The other thing that took place with the Ark of the Covenant is they, as they walked around the city of Jericho for seven days straight, and on the last day they marked, walked around it seven different times, I've always found this interesting that the Ark of the Covenant was right in between two sets of armies and two sets of soldiers. I think there's something significant about that. No one to get too weird about it. But I think the idea was simply that God was in the midst of the army. And they, they whipped Jericho, you know that story, that they defeated their walls and they defeated their giants, that with the presence of God in their midst, there was no obstacle they couldn't overcome. So when David is thinking about, when David says, I want to go get the Ark of the Covenant, David recognizes this is more than just about a box. This is more than just about a token. This is about more than just a piece of furniture. This is about having the very presence of God closer to us than he has been yet heretofore. And we want that so that we can have his guidance, so that we can have his blessing, and so that we can have his power on our lives and on this kingdom. Now look, we look and say, what are we supposed to get out of that? I mean, we don't, you know, we don't have an Ark of the Covenant to go after. And, and, and I, want you to, I want to be careful about our theology here because we do believe that whenever we get saved, we receive all of the Holy Spirit that we're going to get. We don't get saved and kind of get a fraction of the Spirit and then get a little bit more of God's Holy Spirit somewhere down the road or a second or third blessing of the Spirit of God. We don't believe in that. That whenever we get saved, we get all of the Holy Spirit we're going to get. However... Just because we are indwelt with all of God's Holy Spirit does not mean that we always experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. And we all know the difference there between kind of going through the motions of our Christian life and we know that God's there. We know that the presence of God is never going to leave us nor forsake us, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he is empowering us and that he is filling us and that, he, and that we are full of him and that his influence is very real in our lives and in our churches. We all know the difference between having a church service in which God shows up and a church service in which the only reason we know God is there because he promised that he said he was going to be there. There were two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. And we believe that, but we also know there's a difference between God just being indwelling in us and God filling us. There's a big difference there. So I think that's kind of what we're dealing with here tonight is, is the nearness of God and having the fullness of God in our lives. It's very possible to be saved and yet kind of far away from God. Very possible to be saved and yet not really filled with God. It's very possible to be saved. I mean, the Holy Spirit is there, but his influence is not nearly as powerful and as potent as he ought to be. We don't hear his voice like we ought to. That's kind of, I think, where the guidance thing comes in. We read the Bible and we say, man, I just don't know that I'm really getting a whole lot, a whole lot out of this. That's because we're not as close to God as we ought to be. 
We find ourselves struggling and tripping over sins and not able to overcome like we ought to be able to overcome. Again, I believe that's because we are not filled with the fullness of God. So just like David wanted the fullness of God in his kingdom, I think every believer in here ought to desire to have the fullness of God in his or her life on a daily basis so that we can hear his voice, so that we can overcome our temptations, and so that we can know the blessing of God on our lives and in our homes and in our families. We want that. Now, the question is, like David, what do we got to do to have the fullness of God in our lives? David desired the ark of God to be close to him. What do we got to do to have the fullness of God in our lives? I'm going to give you four quick things here. By the way, uh, the clock I'm reading says four o'clock. So by my count, we got four hours left to go. (laughs) I'm kidding. I've already done the math. We've got about 15 minutes left. So hang in there. Number one. If you want the fullness of God in your life, like David, you got to want it. You got to want it. David could have been content with the status quo. It's not like God was completely absent in David's life and ministry up to this point. I mean, honestly, if you go back to the last chapter, it's kind of a highlight reel almost of David's life. God has empowered him. He's defeated the Philistines twice. He builds him a big old house from a complete stranger. He's given him all kinds of sons and, and, and uh, family and things of this nature. All kinds. God is making David great in chapter number five. And David could have been content to say, you know what? Everything's great. You know what? I mean, I don't know that I need a whole lot more. Everything seems to be clicking along just fine as it is. But no, David knew that there was something more. David knew that this is not how it ought to be. David knew that the Ark of the Covenant wasn't where it ought to be and that he was basically aware of this idea. I know that there's more to it than this. Have you ever felt that way in your Christian life? Gone through seasons where you've gone... There's got to be more to it than this. There's got to be more to it than just showing up on Wednesday night and Sunday night and Sunday morning. There's got to be more to it than just going through the motions of the faith and, and, and sticking by the stuff. I mean, yes, that's important to do. But I mean, I, I think there's been times in probably every Christian's life in which we find ourselves saying, is this it? There's got to be more to it than this. And I believe, not that we want to live on these emotional highs all the time, but I really believe that the fullness of God is where it's at. Being saved and distant is not the way it's supposed to be. David, one of the the reasons that David was able to retrieve the the Ark of the Covenant was, number one, because he wanted it. You know, as long as you don't really care about whether God is close or far away, as long as it's not really that big of a deal to you, it's not gonna change. You'll never have a closer walk with God unless you want it. You'll never know the fullness of God unless you want it. As long as your career or hobbies or television or relationships or food or business, as long as that dominates your concerns, you will not have a close walk with God. As long as there are sins that you refuse to give up. I mean, look, I think probably a lot of us, one of the reasons we, we intuitively don't want to be closer to God is because we know if I get too close, I'm going to have to give this up. If I get too close, I'm going to have to change some things. And you better believe it. That's exactly how it is. The closer we get to the holiness of God, the holier we're going to be. But look, as long as you say, I want to hang on to those things, if you don't want it, you're never going to have it. You say, boy, I sure want the fullness of God. That's a good first step. But it's not enough. We saw a lot of sincerity in the early part of chapter 6. 
Jesus said in another place, he said, talking to the woman at the well, he said that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in, what's the next word? Truth. Paul would say something similar in 1 Corinthians, uh, I think, 5, where he said, let's keep the feast with uh, the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here's kind of point number two. You say, I want to know the fullness of God. Well, number one, you got to want it. Number two, you got to know your Bible. You got to know your Bible. Here is David and he's like, oh man, they're cheering and hallelujah and they're praising and boy, we can't wait to get the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And what a blessed day this is. Until the oxen shake the cart and Uzzah reaches up and grabs it and boom, this hallelujah party turned into a funeral just like that. And everybody was scared and they're like, man, just leave it here. And David was upset with God and like, man, Lord, I'm trying to do the right thing here. It's like, well, how was he supposed to know? How was David supposed to know what to do? Man, what was wrong with uh, doing it like this? You see, God had already prescribed a way to transport the Ark of the Covenant. A lot of people don't realize that. We don't have time to look at this, but write these scriptures down. In Numbers chapter 4 and verse 15, Deuteronomy 10 and verse number 8, and 1 Chronicles 15 and verse number 2 reveals that only the Levites were supposed to be carrying the furniture of the tabernacle. And in fact, when it came to the furniture, it was only a specific family among the Levites. And that was the tribe or the family of the Kohathites. They were the only ones that God had prescribed to carry around the furniture. And furthermore, God didn't just say only they can carry the Ark of the Covenant. God had also said, hey, in order to carry the Ark of the Covenant, I want you to make two long wooden staves, staves, wooden rods, overlay them with gold and you're going to put those to the Ark of the Covenant and you're going to carry them on your shoulders. God had already prescribed a certain way to carry the Ark of the Covenant around. It was by the Levites and it was by those rods. Now, now look, I don't know about you. I mean, I I like to be inventive. I like to uh, work smarter and not harder. And if I'm sitting around on a planning committee, I'm kind of like, you know what? Carrying around these things on the shoulders sounds kind of like an old school way to go. Uh, Maybe we ought to get use some of the modern and new technology and use this cart. I probably would have thought the same thing. Got to be what they were thinking. They're like, well, you know how to, uh, whenever the Philistines showed up, that's what, how it showed up from them. Philistines didn't want to touch the thing anymore and they just put it on a cart and sent the oxen on their way. I think it's, this isn't really the point of the sermon, but I think it's a good point to be made is that the church should never be taking its cues on how to relate to God, how to worship God, how to praise God from a bunch of people out here that don't even know God. We don't ask around out here and say, hey, what do you think we ought to be doing? How do you guys like to relate to God? How do you guys like your music? How do you guys like your worship style? Oh, let's start doing that in the church. Look, I know where I'm at. I know you guys uh, and the, the style of music that you have. But I think it's definitely an important point for us to remember that one of the reasons that we tend to stick with more of a reverential style of worship is because we believe in the holiness of God. That doesn't answer all the questions, but I believe it does give us some guide rails about how our music is supposed to be different from everybody else's out there. We don't sit around and go, well, what's popular on, uh, in, in the pop world, in the pop culture world? Let's do that in here. That didn't work well for these guys. There are those out there that say, you know, Brother Joe, I know this, that God only cares about the heart. You know what I want to say? Wrong. Look, I'm not saying God doesn't care about the heart. And by the way, when that is said in the word, that God looks on the heart, it was because 
uh, Samuel was looking on the outward appearance. Samuel was looking at this guy. He's like, wow, what a presidential candidate that looks like. That's got to be the next king of Israel. And God said, don't look on the outside. I'm looking at the heart. That doesn't mean that God doesn't care about the way we worship him and what we do. God does care about the heart, but he also cares about how we go about relating to him. You and I both know that there are sincere people all over this world that have a good heart. They're going to wind up going to hell. You've heard it said that there are people who are sincere and sincerely wrong. We are to worship God both in sincerity and truth. How do we know the truth? Thy word is truth. We get into the word of God. If you're going to you're going to draw closer to God, uh, you, you, you got to do things according to God's word. You have to know your Bible. Sincerity isn't enough. Know and study the word. Live, worship, serve, relate to God according to what he has revealed in the Bible. I'd encourage you if you're not reading your Bible on a regular basis, a daily basis, that's really something you ought to be doing. Because again, you can't just live on K-love Christianity, feel-good Christianity. At some point, it has to be biblical Christianity. A guy has to want it. A guy has to secondly, go about it in a biblical way. The third thing, if you want to be filled with the fullness of God, if you want to be closer to God, you have to spend some time in praise and worship. Now look, praise and worship often get thrown around as synonyms, and I really don't think they are the same thing. Praise tends to celebrate God for the good things that he's done. It's thanking God for the things that he's done in our lives and the goodness that he's poured upon us. It is often seen in thanking him and uh, singing to him and shouting and, in David's case, dancing. (laughs) Now, I don't want to get off on that. I don't think that it was inappropriate, but he was celebrating the goodness of God in some kind of way of praise here in this chapter nor am I prepared to demonstrate that tonight. So uh, don't get your hopes up. But then worship is often seen, uh, worship is more about reverencing God for the great God that he is. Not so much the things that he's done, but who he is. And it is often seen in things like bowing. It is seen in things like sacrifice, both of which are taking place in this story. When David finally gets onto the biblical way and he says, oh man, we weren't following the Bible as we were bringing the Ark of the Covenant back up here. Uh, Let's do things the Bible way. As he starts doing things the Bible way, we notice that he doesn't give up on uh, the constant praise and men every six paces that they took. They offered offerings, burnt offerings and peace offerings. Hey man, what a long journey that must have been. But nevertheless, one that was full of reverence, one that was full of worship. Now, I would encourage you in this. You know, I know a biblical counselor. I knew a biblical counselor. He's gone home to be with the Lord. But he would often tell his patients, people that would come in dealing with all kinds of stuff, depression, anxiety, all kinds of weird thoughts and things of this nature. He would encourage almost every one of them. One of his prescriptions was three times a day, you need to thank God for three different things. He tried to instill in them a habit of thanksgiving, that there's something about thanksgiving that is a powerful antidote to a lot of these things that we struggle with in our minds. And we're called to it all the time in the Word of God, to thank God for the things that He's done, to in everything give thanks. 
I really believe that if we're going to know the nearness of God, the Bible says uh, in Psalm 22, 3, but thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. There's something about praise and thanksgiving that seems to invite the nearness of God. Here's what I'm going to say. As long as you live a life constantly grumbling and complaining and focusing on what's not right. And look, I get it. That's kind of our nature is to notice what's wrong instead of be thankful for what's right. But we really need to flip that script around if we're going to know the nearness of God. Because just like you don't like being around a complainer all the time, I don't really know that God likes being around a complainer all the time. There's a whole generation of people that died in the wilderness because of complaining. What should make us any different? Say, oh, I sure want to know the fullness of God. I want to know the nearness of God in my life. I want to be closer to him. And then grumble and complain. Look, as long as you make a habit of grumbling and complaining, come to church, you never sing, you're always griping about stuff going on in your life. Listen, you are not going to know the fullness of God until you make an intentional effort to say, I'm going to start being thankful. Even if I can't even, even if I don't feel like it, I'm still going to say, God, thank you for this car. Thank you for these clothes. Thank you that I could wake up this morning. Thank you that I got two legs I can walk on. Whatever. Thank God for the things he's done in your life and worship him. Worship just simply is bowing before him and saying, God, you are great and you have done great things. I really believe there needs to be more of that in our daily devotional time. I don't know about you. I, I got to be honest. I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of often jumping into my prayer life and just going straight to asking. God, I need this today. It's like I'm going to the gas station. I just need to get filled up. Jesus taught us not to start our prayers with a bunch of requests, but our Father of Church in Heaven, hallowed be thy name. A reverence, a worship of God. These things draw the attention of God into our lives. The last thing I'm going to say is that if we're going to know the fullness of God, if we're going to be closer to God, we have to humble ourselves in his sight. David's wife, Michael, is upset with David for dancing in what she felt was a provocative way before the ladies of Israel. Essentially, she says, you are shameless today. She is in a way accusing him of being not only maybe provocative, but also of making a fool of himself. David says, but honey, it was for the Lord. And he even says in the last few verses there of chapter six, he says, I will be more vile than thus and I will be base in my own sight. David was basically, I don't think David is justifying any provocative behavior, but he is defending looking like a fool for the honor and glory of God. Look, I don't know very many people that enjoy looking like a fool. Okay, I mean, there's some people, maybe they can't help it. But most people want to control themselves and they want to be cool to some extent. They don't want people to think that they're weird or dumb or foolish. But I'm telling you, I think one of the reasons a lot of us miss out on worshiping God or praising God or enjoying God like we ought to is because, as the old phrase goes, we're just a little too cool for Sunday school. You know, I mean, you know, somebody says, well, I'm not going to raise my hand and thank the Lord when we're singing. That's weird. You know, actually, in the Old Testament, the word thanksgiving in the Psalms means an extension of the hand. It's a physical way to show thanksgiving to God. It's not just somebody being weird. 
It's somebody showing thanksgiving to God. Somebody says, well, I, you know, I just, whenever God convicts me about something, I don't really like to deal with it down at the altar. I just kind of like to deal with it just between me and him. Now, look, I'm not saying you have to do that, but I'm just telling you a lot of times the reason people don't come to the altar is not because they're just going to take care of it between them and God, but because they don't want to be embarrassed. Then there's those Christians that come, and I think we've all done this, come to church and say, you know, I'm just going to kind of act like I got it all together. You know, you walk in, you know how it is. You know, you've been fighting in the car with your wife and you get out and you're like, hey, brother, how's it going? You carry your Bible kind of up here like this. Hey, glory to God. And you say all this kind of stuff. But really inside your heart, you know, there's problems. You know, there's sin. There's things that are not the way they ought to be. But whenever you come in here, you want to make sure nobody thinks that you're a down to earth sinner, but that you're some kind of a super saint. And so you put on the old holy mask. You hear verses about James 5 saying, confess thy faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. You say, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to confess my faults to my brother. I don't want him to think that I'm a sinner. You know what? I've gone to church long enough to know everybody in this church, everybody in this room is a sinner. Amen. Everybody in this room is dealing with one thing or another. Nobody's got it all completely squared away. We're all dealing with something. And so the, the quicker you learn that and can come to church and just be a humble and transparent person, the better you're going to enjoy church. You say, boy, I want to know God's fullness in my life. Again, I, I think you've got to humble yourself before God. I mean, I know that. God says in his word, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. So humble yourself before God. Again, that's why I think coming to the altar is important. It's an act of humility before God. That's why I think raising a hand at Thanksgiving is, is a good thing to do because it's humbling ourselves before God and it's an appropriate act. That's why being transparent around the people around us and not pretending to have it all together, but acknowledging our faults around others instead of trying to hide them. That's the reason I think that's such an important thing to do because when God sees his people being humble, he says, I want to show up and be around those people. Again, when you got saved, you got all the Holy Spirit you're going to get. But there's a difference between being indwelled by the Holy Spirit and being filled with Him. Amen. And all of us want that so we can hear His voice, get His guidance, so we can overcome the sin and temptation that's in our life, so that we can know His blessing on our life, so we can have His power and be an influence around the, the people that we work with and people that we love and the people that are in our families, so we can know the fullness of God in our lives. Where does that come from? Now, look, I don't know that this exhausts the list of the things we got to do. I'm just looking at the pattern we saw with David when he went to retrieve the ark. That he wanted it. He went about it the Bible way eventually. He praised and he worshiped. And he humbled himself before God. Somewhere in that equation, my guess is there's one of those or a number of those that you need to do. And you're in your heart, you're saying, boy, I, I'm just kind of going through the motions right now. And I really want to be closer to God than what I am. I need to be closer to God than what I am. I used to be closer to God than what I am. I pray the Holy Spirit of God speaks to you in one of those areas and says, that's it. You're not wanting it. You're not reading your Bible. You don't ever say thank you. You never worship. You're too proud. God's trying to help you. Would you get right with him tonight? And would you know again the sweetness of nearness to our Heavenly Father? Let's stand to our feet with heads bowed and eyes closed.